This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, April 19th, 2023. On today's episode... We are going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about The Mandalorian Chapter 24, The Return. This is Slash Home Editorial Director Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars expert Brian Young. I'm thrilled to be back in the United States. Uh, for those of you wondering, Brian has been awake for 24 hours, traveling, traveling well, around the world. I was I was yesterday, so I I, I traveled. Tw- I was awake twenty four hours traveling from London to Salt Lake City yesterday, um, and then crashed very hard last night, and then got up at four a.m. to do Mandalorian stuff. So it's been it's been a long couple of days, but uh, Star Wars nourishes me. You know what they say, Brian? This is the way. I hear they uh, do say that. Yeah. Okay, let's get into feedback before we get into the episode. As always, you can write us at peter at com, and we will sometimes read your emails. Uh, we got a bunch of emails here. Quaid from Canada. We actually got a couple emails from Canada this week. Uh, Quaid from Canada writes in, after seeing Grogu interacting with so many various creatures this season, he wanted to ask Brian, is there any other examples of Yoda species having a more nature-oriented force connection could this be why yoda chose a swamp surrounded by flora and fauna and little creatures to retire to i mean we don't we see this with a lot of people though ezra has this as well like this is how ezra is able to tap into the pergils in rebels um that he can kind of tap into animals which is why he does this with loath cats and loath wolves and loath tyrannosauruses no there aren't loath tyrannosauruses but that would be cool um but we haven't seen this with yaddle uh yaddle in her appearances and there was just a high republic book that yaddle featured prominently in and that connection to nature really didn't figure into it at all um i think each jedi's abilities are just sort of 
different and I don't think it's anything innate with the species. I think they're all unique. Okay, we have a bit of a correction here from Matthew in Toronto. He wrote wrote in, uh, you and Brian were talking about Captain uh, Pelion trying to clarify where he was at the end of Rebels. In the last episode of Rebels, uh, the captain is on a Star Destroyer that is part of the blockade out in space while Grand Admiral Thrawn is on a different Star Destroyer directly in the atmosphere of Lothal above the capital city. Uh, when the Space Whales, a.k.a. the Purgil, appear, Thrawn calls up to the captain to get a report, and he talks to him briefly before his radio goes gets cut off. When the Purgil takes Grand Admiral Thrawn's Star Destroyer with Ezra out to hyperspace, uh, Captain Pelion is not with them, so it doesn't say anything as to well, if Thrawn has returned from deep space or not. The Pergil, the Pergil broke that whole blockade, though. So, like, it didn't. I don't feel like they just took Thrawn's star destroyer. I feel like they took a bunch of those star destroyers from the blockade, not just those that were in near atmosphere. Uh, maybe they didn't take all of them, but I know they took more than just Thrawns. But we don't know for sure if they took Pelions, the Star Destroyer. I mean, I I guess. But why did his radio go out? Talking about well, how these creatures were breaking the blockade. Well, wouldn't it go out if, if the creatures took Thrawns' ship into hyperspace? So, like, they've interrupted the signal? But they were still talking with the, the ground after the, the Pergils had, had come down. I don't know. I'll have to relook at it. I'll rewatch it again and I'll send you an email. <laughs> yeah, I, I have not rewatched the episode, so I'm not sure. But, anyways, I'm, I'm reading it because we got the email. And we also got an email from Cade from Iowa who asks if Grogu was mind flayed. Brad, what do you think? Do you think, you know, they set up mind flaying in this season? Do you think that's why Grogu didn't know about his Jedi training and stuff? Uh, I don't necessarily know about that. I, f- I feel like maybe it's just a uh, a trauma thing, you know, because he is still very little and a lot happened. Uh, and we don't know if maybe it was something that he did out of, you know, just self-preservation because it was such a, you know, a terrible thing that happened to him. And lots of people bury uh, traumatic memories like that and uh, actually end up forgetting them until, you know, they're triggered. So it's possible, but I think that it's more likely that it's just from a PTSD situation. Yeah, I tend to agree. Brian, do you you also agree? Yeah, no, I mean, like, I think that's really the crux of what Luke was saying in Book of Boba Fett, right? About how, like, it's not like I'm training him anything. I'm breaking down those walls so he's remembering them. And, yeah, and trauma processing, there's a lot of, you know, dissociation and and memory blocks and amnesiatic walls and things like that. So, So, yeah, I think that's... Maybe they did mind flay him, but it's not like he didn't go through enough trauma to, you know, build all of that in other ways. Yeah, I also wonder why would they mind flay him anyways? Like, especially if they wanted the information he had, why would they? I don't know. I'm not sure it makes any sense. I mean, to torture him? I mean, they didn't even ask Han any questions. Oh, that's true. That's true. Okay, let's get into it. Let's get into this week's episode. Let's start with brief reactions. 
I'm going to start with Brad. Brad, what are your thoughts on the finale for season three of The Mandalorian? I thought it was a pretty solid uh, season finale, especially for a show that has um, a season that has felt a little bit disjointed as far as like the stories that it tells. Even even the ones that I have liked, uh, it, the, the season never really felt, uh, I don't know, super cohesive to me. It felt kind of scattershot. Uh, and I, I think with these last two episodes, it brought everything together. Um, but I think that the finale also kind of makes it seem like some of the previous, uh, side quest episodes maybe aren't quite as important as they might've been, even if they are like a cool narrative break from what we usually expect, uh, stellar action, um, some really great, uh, hero and villain moments. Um, but there's also a part of me that feels like this, this kind of acts as like a, a reset to get Mandalorian back to where he should be. Uh, and that kind of makes me wish that they would have maybe told this story outside of the purview of the Mandalorian and maybe just made like a spinoff show where the focus was simply uh, Mandalore. And of course, we've talked about how the Mandalorian maybe that doesn't just apply to, to uh, Din Djarin, uh, that it could be expanded to include Bo-Katan and, you know, Boba Fett and, and all those things. But I think a lot of people agree that the show is supposed to be about Din Djarin and uh Maybe it was just too much of a uh, a distraction from his story this season. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I enjoyed what it brought, even if uh, it made me feel like the overall season maybe didn't measure up to the previous two. Yeah, I got to agree with you. I, I think this episode had a lot of cool action. Um, it felt a bit overstuffed, almost like it needed a, a longer runtime. It... Um, I was saying this to Brian right before we were recording, but it almost feels to me like if you had told me that the Mandalorian was canceled and they had one episode to, to wrap up things, they were like, you know, given one episode to, to wrap up things. Like I would totally believe that this is that episode. Like, it feels like it like wraps up so much. Um, and at the same time, I, I think even though that this has like some really cool stuff to it and it, it does, uh, bring things to a climactic conclusion. I felt a little underwhelmed um, in that. I don't know. You know, they say expectation is the the thief of of joy, and maybe it's me projecting onto like what I was looking forward to in in this episode, and it maybe not what they were actually setting up in this episode. But I mean, we've talked in the past about like you know the season finale of uh, of the first uh, season and the season finale of the second season kind of having like these big uh, reveals. This one didn't really have uh, a huge reveal. So I think that like, that's not something that like I'm necessarily bringing to the table. That's something I think they've like set up with this, f- with this uh, franchise. Uh, but on top of that, I feel like also, there was a bunch of questions and ideas that this series has brought into play over, you know, even even from the first episode of the first season that are kind of, I don't want to say discounted, but like kind of uh, given an answer in this episode that isn't completely satisfying to me. <laughs> uh, but... But I enjoyed it. It sounds like I'm more down on it than I than I am. I will say that I'm I'm kind of annoyed that they they had like this big Paz Vizsla you know death and there's like really no acknowledgement of it other than 
the baptism scene and like even then there's no acknowledgement i know like you know stuff was going down so it's not like you have time to like, grieve or whatever but i feel like that should have been more of an emotional kind of thing but anyways uh brian what are your thoughts on this episode of the mandalorian so i i think there was a lot of cool stuff to like in this episode but it felt very by the numbers if that makes sense like I think one of the things that I really loved about season two and season one is that it, it felt very surprising, but, but inevitable, right? Like they built to everything properly, but they gave you some really strong surprises. And that's one of my, my favorite things about the last Jedi, right? Is that like there, there comes a point in the narrative where something happens and you're like, I can't even begin to predict what's going to happen next because it's gone so far off the rails of what I thought was possible. And this never really jumped that moment. It was very much like, okay, we're going to fight. Okay, they're going to escape. Okay, they're going to fight. Okay, that's how that should go. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense for his plan. No surprises there. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't feel like like the images and the visuals were all terrific. It was well acted. It was well performed. It was well staged. But, like, there wasn't anything really jumping out at me surprising. There were some ideas I really loved that came out of this, though, and I think those are almost better um, than than the structure of the narrative, if that makes sense. Okay, you'll have to bring those up when we come to them. Um, this episode is also directed by Rick, who directed the last episode. He directed, I think, the first episode of the season. Um, this episode begins with Bo-Katan. Uh, radioing into X Woves, who is still rocketing out of the atmosphere and filling him in on the whole situation, telling him that they, he needs to evacuate the ships. They need to take the battle to the ground because they're not going to win in the air. And I know some people are annoyed that there there's this whole episode of this season setting up the fact that the Mandalorian didn't have enough fuel to get to that bird nest. But then they are somehow like somehow the Mandalorians have enough fuel to rocket out of the atmosphere, which, you know. So I don't I didn't get the impression that that was actually out of the atmosphere. I thought that those ships were still sort of uh, above the cloud cover. Yeah. I mean, that's Um, it's it's just like I will say that the one thing I'm going to criticize, like uh, John Favreau as a writer, I feel like sets up these ideas that are only supposed to be. A setup and pay off for that one episode and aren't you're not but, supposed to think about I mean, them further do you know what i mean like like the the when they ran out of fuel for the the bird creature right yeah they could have been going 30 40 50 miles right and rocketing two miles up in the air like just because it's up in the air and it looks higher than than they went distance wise elsewhere doesn't necessarily mean that that uh wouldn't make sense. I don't know. Yeah, I they, agree they with did, you. Yeah, they did kind of make it seem like they were chasing that creature for a long time. And also, I think that it would stand to reason that depending on how, you know, what that planet is like, like a trip to the, you know, the, the inner atmosphere, or whatever you want to call it, you know, might be shorter than it would be if it were on Earth or something like that. And maybe the gravity situation is different as you get up there. And so once you have a certain amount of thrust, you can make it farther and you'd not have to use as much fuel to get up there. There's, there's plenty of excuses you can come up with. Yeah. Um, but and at the end of the day, it's it's a little nitpick. I, I, I agree with both of you. I, I think it's a simple... <laughs> 
I, I think it's, a, I brought it up because I saw people in our Slack channel talking about it. Um, but I think it's a symptom of a bigger issue. And the bigger issue is that um, in this, in this franchise, in, in this um, show, they bring up these things that I feel like should be setups for further on in the season or the, or the franchise, but just tend to be like a setup for just that one episode. And then like the next episode completely not discounts it, but like, you know, the whole removing your helmet thing seems like not important anymore. Like after this episode, the whole dark saber seems not important. Uh, the I whole... disagree with that too. Like I will, we'll get into that later. Okay. We'll get into that later, but it, it uh, I don't know. Uh, at times if it does feel like, um, <laughs> I say this in the best and worst ways possible. It feels like John Favreau playing with the star Wars toys being like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then we're going to take R2 or uh, R5, and we're going to – he has to go down the cavern, so we're going to – he's going to have his rockets. He's going to go down into the cavern. Like, do you know what I mean? It, it feels – to me, it feels like – I got some things like, to say about that too, Peter. Okay, we'll, we'll, get to, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that later. I'm sorry to bring up specific moments, but um, to me, it feels like John Favreau – doesn't watch a lot of TV and he watches a lot of movies and these things are written as kind of like movies that are split up into chapters, which I guess they are chapters. They're even say they're chapters, but it doesn't, I don't know. Something feels off. A- I, I mean, like I, I, I get you and I agree to an extent, but the examples you cited were specifically things that I was like, Ooh, I really liked what he did there because it had a lot of meaning. <laughs> So uh, I'm interested to talk about those and kind of get more of your perspective on them and offer more of mine. Okay. Another one is the clone thing, but we'll, we'll get there. We're, we have a lot to get to here. So meanwhile, Mando is able to escape the capture from the two troopers. They just put two troopers in charge of Mando. And uh, also, you know, thanks to the save by IG-12 and Grogu. Um is it really stupid of Moff Gideon to assume that two of these troopers are enough to hold Mando? I mean, I, at this point, I don't necessarily think he cares about Mando. He's there to crush Bo-Katan. And also, yeah. I mean, villains are always making these these silly mistakes because they're too arrogant and they're too cocky to see past their own hubris. So he thinks that Mando has been incapacitated enough that he's not really going to put up much of a fight after that. Yeah. And I like that in writing-wise, like this is kind of echoing... Mando saving Grogu in the the prison. It's it's kind of like a reverse of that. Yeah. With uh, you know, Grogu saving Mando. Um, any thoughts on this fight sequence? I thought it was cool. I mean the 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 gentleman in the Din Djarin costume really sell it really well. The Imperial <laughs> Super Commandos of Moff Gideon's did really well, and. It's just fun watching Grogu put things together with that IG-12 costume, and I'm really kind of disappointed that we got away from it so quickly. I know. Uh, like, I want, like, I don't know, yeah, it, it, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So IG-12 sprays Mando with some back to spray. Uh, if you remember, he did this in the, or IG-11 did it at the end of season, season one. one. Yeah, when he's trying to save his life. Uh, that's how he saves him from Moff Gideon the first time, and 
it it was a lot more controlled than man uh, than Grogu just like spraying it in his face for no reason, which was adorable and hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So chapter twenty three title is revealed as the return. Every episode, I ask Brian to explain because it's usually you know there's one obvious return and then there's uh, other multiple meanings. So Brian, explain to us other than Mandalore. I mean, they're returning to Mandalore. So there's what that. Is the that surface level, like this is the Mandalorians returning to Mandalore, but you also have uh, Axe Woves returning with reinforcements. You've got Axe Woves returning Moff Gideon's stolen cruiser uh, in the most spectacular way possible. You have uh, a return back to the status quo or a new status quo of, uh, you know, the, the episode where Din and Grogu um, return back to their sort of questing ways. You've got this return to his bounty hunting lifestyle. You've got their return to Navarro. There's a lot of returns layered on top of each other. Um, a return to the forge and the unity of the Mandalorians and a way before the, the, you know, violence of their, their inner fighting. Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot there. The return of R5-D4. Yeah. Yeah. Redemption. Um, You had a lot more returns than I I thought you were going to have, to be honest with you. (laughs) That's uh, why I'm here. You get extra points. Um, (laughs) Last week's title was The Spies. And you know what? I feel like there's two kinds of speculation. There's a speculation where fans just make something up and they want it to be true. And there's really like no real evidence of it in the the content the, that they're watching. And I think that's unfair, obviously. And that sets up uh, un, unreasonable, uh, you know, expectations that, that the show is never going to deliver upon. But then there's the other case of speculation where the show, uh, in the context of the show, sets something up that feels like it's leading people to believe something. And last week, the episode was called The Spies. It wasn't called The Spy. It was called The Spies. And even Brian had trouble of uh, identifying more than one spy other than uh, G68 in last week's episode, which led a lot of fans to believe that someone in the Mandalorian crew was a spy working for Gideon. There was like so much speculation over the last week of is it the armor, which uh, Brian discounted very easily last and week. And so did Brad. And Brad, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, but you know, like we were talking about Axe Woves, there was all sorts of theories. Um, and then in this episode, and, uh, you know, there was no spy, which I like. I'm I was, not going to be upset. I about. was still waiting for it, though. Like when Axe yeah. Woves is like, everybody clear the ship, but I'm like, I guess yeah. maybe he could be the other spy. Yeah, or I thought he was going to the... like have make them leave and then start blasting them out of the air. <laughs> And then the other one I thought was when they went down under the tunnels to the farm system. I thought like, well, these these guys have been surviving on Mandalore. Maybe they are in league with with Moff Gideon. Maybe they're leading them into another trap, which would have been an exciting, you know, turn there. But nope, nope. If anything, now I'm thinking that maybe the spies uh, does apply to those surviving Mandalorians who have been stuck on Mandalore, and maybe it's because they were, have been spying on Gideon and the Empire and knew what was going on there. Hmm. I wish they could have provided some intel last week, some better intel that like would have substantiated that. Yeah, if that makes sense. Um, 
don't know. Again, this is a nitpicky thing, but I do feel like this is something that's like in the text of the show that led people, like led many people to believe this. Like many, like, you know, not people, people that just generally watch it and aren't watching YouTube videos or listening to this podcast. A lot of people I talked to were like, who do you think the spy is? <laughs> I was like, yeah, no. So, yeah. Um, okay, so Bo-Katan and the crew escape to the surface as the TIE interceptors uh, launch into the sky. Moff Gideon studies a holographic map of the base where there are two dots representing the escape Mando and Grogu, and there's even a green dot to represent Grogu, I assume. And he, he announces to the trooper that... Uh, I'm going to take care of them myself and then storms off kind of like Thanos did. And, um, you know, in my notes, I said, I don't understand if he knows that Grogu is there. There's a green dot representing him in the map. Why isn't he more interested in Grogu? I think I asked that last week, but I guess this episode kind of answers that they, he got from Grogu everything he needed. But I would think like he'd be more concerned that Grogu has power, like, that they should send more forces against Grogu, right? I mean... Knowing that he has force powers, I'm, I'm saying. Like, he seems so concerned with Din and not Grogu in this scene. Where he could, Does he know that Grogu's there? I think he knows Grogu's there. What are your thoughts? I mean, ultimately, it... it, it whether Din knows Grogu's there or not, he acts as though Grogu's not. Not Din, and uh, Moff Gideon. Moff Gideon. Um, I don't think Moff Gideon cares. Right? Like, uh, it. what does it matter? They got all the blood that they needed the last time they, they captured it. Yeah. And, and plus, like, it was has, immaterial to him. Has Gideon ever seen Grogu use his Force abilities? Um, yeah, I thought he tried when he had him in that little prison in those tiny baby handcuffs. <laughs> I think so. I think so. But maybe he doesn't know that he's like... Yeah, I don't think he's you know, honed he his skills. And it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he knows that he's gotten better since they last saw him. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so Mando radios R5. He needs him to connect into the base to find Moff Gideon's command center. So the astromech rockets down into the Imperial base and jacks into the computer port. And this is like one of those moments where I see like a young John Favreau with his action figures, like just, you know, I mean, it, it's cool. Brian, you had something to say about this. I did. I think this is one of the, my favorite moments in that they sort of give obstacles for the droids based on the droids temperament and what they can handle. Right, so when we saw R2 rocket down to a place in Attack of the Clones or Revenge of the Sith, especially in Revenge of the Sith, he's using his rocket power, he's like oiling these droids and exploding them with his rockets and stuff, and he can handle that. We see Chopper, who's more of like a really surly dog, like murdering other droids, ejecting him out of the airlock and stuff, and like R5-D4, he's struggling with some mouse droids with some really intimidating lights. And that made me very happy. Mando gets the coordinates to Moff Gideon's command oh, hold, center. Hold on, hold on a second. Let's let me go back because I want to find find out something. So has R five just been sitting here waiting this whole time? 
because I feel like a, a lot has happened and like it, it probably took them a long time to like get across Mandalore and all, for all this stuff to happen. Has he just been chilling there? <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that, Brad, to be honest so, with you. I've watched this multiple times and I just assumed he was with the Mandalorians. But you're right. I think he's been on the planet this whole time. When, I mean, because he took off with Bo-Katan and Din Djarin when they left the planet. And he's been in the socket every time they've been flying the N one. Yeah, no, I'm, oh. I, I mean, has he like since they landed on Mandalore again? He, he's still been there for a pretty long time. <laughs> like he's been yeah, there. No, I mean, he's just been hanging out while they go on their little sailing adventure, and I think he was on that sailor ship. Was he? Because it seems like he was. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, maybe. I'll have to go. Like, let's go back and look. <laughs> if 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 not, they should do a series of like shorts showing like the things that he was doing during that time. Like maybe he decided to like chase after a little creature or something like that. Or like there's got to be a bunch of stuff that R five does in his spare time. By the way, you know we just had celebration. They just announced three new movies. What happened to the Droid of Star Wars story? <laughs> I was actually excited for Droid of Star Wars story. I know, like I, I don't w- know. I thought it was an animated project, right? Or that it was. Like Anthony Daniel, I don't know. Who knows? I'm sure it'll come if it's going to, but they've never like officially said like, "Hey, we pulled the plug on this," right? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, everything everything was... at Lucasfilm is always in development until it's not. <laughs> well, I mean, like they also at the same time they announced Lando, and Lando just keeps going like we're still having conversations with with Donald Glover about what that show is. Um, so maybe Droid Tales is still like Anthony Daniels going like. Let's do this. And they're like, no, let's do that. And they're still arguing about it. I mean, it just seems like a silly thing, whatever it is. Like, I I mean, I guess it's probably going to be animated. No matter what it's going to be, like, even if it's not like, you know, Clone Wars or Rebels, like, style animated, even if it's like computer animated, like it's motion capture kind of thing, which I'm assuming it's probably going to be, it still takes a lot of time to do that. So maybe maybe that's what's happening. If they put the green light into going into production on it when they announced it, I mean, it takes two or three years of development to get an animated show out. So, like, it's funny when people are like, oh, they're reacting to fan reaction on Bad Batch or Clone Wars or, or even Mandalorian because it's like, are you are you kidding? Like, yeah, that's not how this works, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, like that decision was made two years ago. Your reaction, like literally paid, like has nothing to do with anything. If if, if yes. they were reacting to the fan stuff, you would have like little scribbles of storyboards sitting in for scenes instead of, <laughs> instead of full animation. Yeah, be, before they even go in production on like these Mandalorian episodes, they need to basically create the visual effects before they shoot, yeah. so they can do it on the volume. It, it's yeah. like a backwards process, which actually takes a lot more time. The the one thing I keep on hearing. And maybe you guys would like to respond to this. I'm not sure we've mentioned it. Is the the fan story or the the thing that's going on on all the YouTube uh, channels and stuff like that, saying that uh, at the end of season two of Mandalorian, you know, uh, gives Grogu to Luke Skywalker. That Disney and Lucasfilm were like, we need Grogu in season three of the Mandalorian. So they basically wrote those two episodes in the Book of Boba Fett so that it could get. Grogu back in back to Mandalorian, and this whole season has suffered for it because it basically they're having to reset everything to zero. 
Brian, what are your thoughts? No, that decision was made long before, like when they were breaking out that story before we ever saw that episode, book of Boba Fett was already written and in production and probably already mostly shot. Yes. Like, and, and you can tell because like Fennec Shand was a character for book of Boba Fett and they had her planned and shot and ready so that she was making appearances in animation, which is an even longer production process in season one, a bad batch that was coming out almost simultaneously. Like to think that they don't have like a very intricate master plan years in advance um, is silly. But it's also silly to think that the studio interferes with something that's Grogu is one of the most profitable things for that company. Uh, the, the the show in the first two seasons was critically acclaimed. Uh, you know, fans loved it. Like there is no reason whatsoever for like the studio to interfere. Like the studio doesn't interfere with Marvel. You know, yeah, Marvel's I, making I'll, tons of money. Yeah, I, I I will like I will tell you this absolute certainty. Uh, Disney does not interfere with Lucasfilm nearly as much as anybody thinks that they do. Lucasfilm has just as much autonomy as Marvel does, if not more. Uh, and Disney is not sitting there meddling in like every single decision that they make and like demanding things out of them. Yeah, no, it's it's like it's interesting. You never hear that same complaint leveled about Marvel or Pixar. Even like, does anybody does anybody seriously go like, wow, Disney really screwed Pixar and interfered with Pete Doctor on that last film? Like, no, nobody, nobody says that. Why is it well, only no, Lucasfilm? You, you do hear about that with like them uh, putting the, their last few movies to Disney Plus and then. Yeah, but that's a distribution thing, yeah, not yeah. a production thing. Yeah. And that was during the pandemic, too. Yeah, yeah. Which is when like everybody's going like, what the hell are we doing? And they didn't know. Um, but you, usually when something's successful, studio is not meddling. You know, when, when something's successful, they're like, let the creatives do their thing. We'll get out of the way. We want to, you know, make, let's make more money guys. Yeah. <laughs> that's basically what they're doing. Um, that said, I think the, the whole idea of resetting everything in book of Fett, I think was probably not a good idea, uh, creatively in my mind, but, but I don't think it was a studio anybody- meddling. You don't hear anybody complaining about that moment anymore, though. At least which, I don't. I haven't seen that. And that was moment? something we kind of said. Just that he returns back to, to Din Djarin. Like, I, I think we all talked about how on on this show that, like, by the time two or three episodes in on this season had, had gone by, no one would be talking about that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so Mando gets the coordinates uh, to Moff Gideon's command center as Axe Woves finally gets to the capital ship, uh, sending all the Mandalorian down as reinforcements. Um, and, of course, this is the moment where Brad, Brian, and myself all were like, what is Axe doing? Something's, something's fishy in uh, the... You know the Lake Cruiser, but yeah, apparently yeah, there was, that is there was the a case. there was a whole sequence of events where I was like, okay, who's gonna do it? Like, is okay, is Axe Wolves gonna like start like <laughs> you know sharp shooting Mandalorians with the ship, or is like the armor all of a sudden gonna like take the fleet and turn turn on people? And there's like a whole succession of just like, oh, who's who's gonna do it here? <laughs> and it's a weird thing creatively in in fiction when you're expecting something to happen and it doesn't happen. You kind of almost feel cheated. It's not like a 
a reversal where it's fun. If that makes sense, like a, a you know surprise, it's kind of like wait, oh, that's weird. Uh, but anyways, um, so the Mandalorian jetpack uh, to the gauntlet drop ships, and they descend to the planet. By the way, that's weird that they had to get to the the gauntlet uh, drop ships, like going down to the planet. You think that they could just jetpack down to the planet? I mean, they, jetpacked they up. They can, but they're they're not as fast. And they're not as heavily armored against the TIE Interceptors they know are coming. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, so the TIE Interceptors jet up through the clouds, past the moon of Concordia in the background. And so next we have this cool action sequence with Mando uh, with no weapons. Needs to make his way down that catwalk hallway, fighting Imperial Commandos, Super Commandos, uh, between each of the barrier shields to get to the command center. Brad, what are your thoughts on this action sequence? Uh, it's solid, you know. It's uh, I, I like that they, you know, he had a strategy for dealing with them instead of fighting them all at once. Uh, involved R five doing his little thing and getting a little bit more redemption out of him. And uh, yeah, there was some good, you know, hand to hand combat here with him constantly upgrading his his weapons, which was a lot of fun. It kind of felt like a little video game scene, you know, where first he gets the knives and then he gets the uh, the electrified staff and then he gets the blaster and he's off to the races. Brian, what are your thoughts on the sequence? No, I think I think Brad hit hit the nail on the head. I really like how it sort of references Phantom Menace, um, where you kind of see that this is Gideon's security system and watching him be able to subvert it because he's finally able to trust a droid is really gratifying. And also there's something really adorable about him, like keeping Grogu back. Like, no, I can't let too many of them out because I've got to, you know, I've got to protect the boy. And of course, during the sequence, R5 gets distracted by a mouse droid and then they call reinforcements and there's just like all these mouse droids and R5 eventually escapes by rocketing away. Why don't most droids have like, Missiles they can shoot or something. They just seem like a because uh, they're a little like they're like, they're, a, they're like a little alarm system. Yeah, yeah, like they notice things and they're they're couriers, right? Like they're just shuttling little bits of information and data cards around and stuff. Or you know, maybe they have Anzellans inside them. Who knows? They're like mall security um, guards. They don't really have any power. They're just annoying. <laughs> well, which is why. They, they, why it's so funny right like if if it's r2 it's like you've got two super battle droids coming for him but r5 can't handle that yeah so you've got mouse droids it's just like the level of danger that that droid can handle is what the the gods of the show you know challenge him with i do love that when r5 blasts off one of the mouse droids falls off the cliff too (laughs) yes that was cool uh one of my favorite things is when you go to celebration or you go to a convention and there's the the droid builder section and there's people that build the mouse droids and like they'll they'll like build all these things like these compartments that open sometimes they'll like the whole thing opens and you'll see like like an anzellan is inside operating it or something i don't know it's, yeah it's, it's yeah so creative uh does it bother either of you that moff gideon's hideout has the death star wall lights in it no, that's just the imperial just, aesthetic at this point. <laughs> yeah. And and Gideon seems to be like a real imperial traditionalist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mando finds Gideon's lab, which has tanks with bodies on either side, uh, which, by the way, looks way cooler in the concept art that they showed during the credits. Like, 
it just i don't know it didn't i feel like didn't translate to the live action uh we finally get an answer the question of what did the imperials want with grogu which was introduced in chapter one of the mandalorian and it turns out all along it was moff gideon was doing his own experiments off book the other imperials didn't know and he wanted to create clones of himself with force powers and here's one of the moments that I feel like I'm disappointed by like this. Th- there's this thing that's been like set up in the first episode of the show and the answer, Brad, I, am I, am I wrong to be disappointed by this, this explanation? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's like, if it's disappointing because of that, or if it's disappointing because it didn't lead to a thing that felt like it was actually a challenge for them to deal with, because I would have much rather preferred to him, for him to at least have got, gotten like one of them out and like to see what it can do. Uh, but it feels like it's like they set up for this, like a video game boss and then you never had to fight him. Um, and like, it just feels like it was all too easy to borrow a star Wars quote uh, to, to dispatch with all of these clones and to ruin his plans. Um, gr- granted, we can argue once we get to the end, whether or not Gideon is actually dead and, you know, if there's, you know, still other clones out there that he could still have waiting in the wings or something like that, who knows? Um, but like, if anything, what this made this feel like was just fodder for setting up the, like the future of like, you know, setting up a, a clone thread to lead into the sequel trilogy while also giving the villain a plot that didn't necessarily, you know, lead to any major confrontations for Mando and, and Grogu. I think my still, problem, though, is is not that it didn't lead to like you know a, a super villain battle that you're you're pointing out to. I think my problem is like I thought it was going to connect to a bigger. I thought it was going to connect to the sequel trilogy, or I thought like. Well, I think I it will. I think it will eventually. Yeah, I think it does, and I think Brian also has an idea of that. Like this thread will probably continue once Thrawn comes along, but I'll let him talk about that. Yeah, like I thought, I was really actually this is one of the things I was really satisfied in the episode with because it gives us that intermediary step. And if you look across star Wars storytelling that they're doing right now between this and bad batch. And, and I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, you're not, you're not caught up on bad batch right now. I am not. Um, But this is really where that cloning force users research is starting, right? This is why the empire is going after Omega this is why they're decommissioning the clones and doing horrible experiments on them and abducting Kaminoans uh, left over after the genocide to force them into doing the research. And this is what the Imperial Science Division that Dr. Pershing comes to be a part of is doing and working on. So when you take what's happening here with Gideon in the context of Bad Batch and them having worked on this for the last 20 plus years and not gotten anywhere... It makes you think about the sequel trilogy, right? It makes you think about Snoke. It makes you think about Palpatine and how they got there. And Gideon was really making these intermediary steps because it seemed like it was working. Um, But the facility that they're working on in Bad Batch is Mount Tantus, which is a central location in Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire trilogy, which, which is what they're mining for the Thrawn story going forward. So... I really think the four sensitive clones are going to come up again in Thrawn and Ahsoka, knowing that they're threading those ties through the other series as well. And I don't think the three caches of 
uh, clones that we've seen of Moff Gideon are the only caches that he has, right? Like we saw one on Navarro. Uh, we saw some on his cruiser. We saw some here on Mandalore. Does Gideon seem like the guy who's going to put all of his eggs in even three different baskets? But he's, he did, he's he did spread seem spread out all over the place. He did seem pretty distraught and upset about it though. And like, I feel like he maybe wouldn't be if he knew he had others around. Like it would have been like, he's like, don't, he, like, don't worry about it. I have more. He, also seems like a guy who doesn't have great emotional regulation. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I, I think for me is like if Moff Gideon was working with these other Imperial remnant people in creating this program, it would feel less. It feels so disconnected because it doesn't feel like if he's dead, we can talk about that later and <laughs> speculation. But if he's dead, which I'm, I'm guessing he is, um, it doesn't seem like there's anybody with knowledge. You know, uh, Dr. Pershing's mind has been flayed. There's like nobody with knowledge of, of what advancements he made or what he was doing or, or Grogu's D uh, DNA that he like Metacorians that he had captured. Like it feels like it. It ends here as Mando detonates the, the clone so, tanks. Aaliyah Kane still has information. Um, Brendel Hux is still out there with all of that stuff. I, I don't. But he's doing I, like, Project ne Necromancer. I feel like it's a totally separate program. But there was it's also already. Even, but there yeah. was already suspicion that that uh, Gideon was doing something with cloning. Like the the in the meeting, it was mentioned, and Gideon had to yeah. like faint. Like he's like, no, no, I'm not interested in cloning. <laughs> yeah. But also, you've got Pershing. Like, there's the implication that Pershing could recover some of that memory, or uh, still come back as a player on all of this. In, in these in these ways and it sounds like Hux is going to go after him yeah I don't know it, it feels to me I hate to bring up these words because I know Brian is going <laughs> to piss off Brian but it feels to me kind of it leaves me in the same way like uh, Last Jedi kind of left me where there was mysteries that were set up in the you know the first episode of the first season and it, the the answers are kind of like a sub or are not very satisfying. Uh, uh, the answers in Last Jedi were very much satisfying. It's Rise of Skywalker that ruined the answers. Uh, I don't know about that. No, they were 100% uh, were. And if they would have let it play out like it was supposed to, then it wouldn't have been a problem. I don't know. Everybody's asking who who is Rey. It's not like a thing that people brought to the movie uh, of Force no, Awakens. The central question of Force Awakens was not who is Rey. The central question is why didn't Luke show up on the catwalk to save han because that was the central conflict of empire strikes back in jedi why didn't luke show up the first words of the opening crawl in last Je or of force awakens i have no luke problem Skywalker with how vanished. i have no problem with how ryan johnson handled luke skywalker the, that that makes sense to me i guess my problems are with you know killing off snoke and then making ray nobody i'm not saying that she had to be somebody but Nobody is like the worst possible answer. I disagree. I think nobody is infinitely more powerful than her being tied to anybody remotely known in the galaxy. Mm. I'm not saying that JJ um, Abrams did did, did uh, an awesome job of tying her to Palpatine, but I, I think if you're going to make this the end, okay. Anyways, we're getting sidetracked here. Basically, what I'm saying here is with with this is I feel like this is a mystery that was set up in the the first season, of the first episode, and it, it kind of. It becomes think, unimportant, and it's just like so, the dark saber becomes kind of unimportant, which we'll get to in a little bit. I, I think. I think the thing about the clones, though, is that we know where it goes. We know where 
cloning Force users technology ends up. It ends up giving us Snoke. It ends up giving us Palpatine. And we know that it's central to the Legends story of Thrawn. So I'm still very much giving it the benefit of the doubt, knowing that this is still planting that garden that we're going to cultivate later. Yeah, even if it creates uh, and, and affirms uh, one of the worst uh, holes in Rise of Skywalker, which is how they're able to bring back Emperor Palpatine, and yet they can't bring back Snoke. I think it was they didn't want to bring back Snoke. Like, mm. what is mm. what does Palpatine need Snoke for if if they kill Snoke? Mm. Wasn't mm. Snoke just a puppet? Yeah, not really. I mean, he was a puppet in the sense that like the Emperor like controlled him, but it's not like he was like a real puppet. <laughs> I thought he was kind of like a real. Or actually, I don't know. Like, how far into the uh, that book? Uh, I completely forget. Does, does it get into? Yeah, does it get into Snoke? It gets into the the cloning program that produced Dathan, yeah. uh, who is Ray's father. Um, it didn't really touch on Snoke much. The most we've gotten backstory wives of Snoke is stuff from Ben Solo's childhood or teenage years, where he's showing him things and introducing him to the Knights of Ren and things like that. They haven't delved too much into it because I think part of it is that like J.J. Abrams decision to do that is a little bit silly. And the 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 deeper you dive into it, the sillier it might seem. Yep. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to be the J.J. Abrams apologist, but I, I guess maybe I am. But when he's, introdu- <laughs> when he's introduced in uh, Force Awakens, it, it, it was kind of like a big, like, Oz, great and powerful vibe of, like, the, the big head. And, like, it felt yeah. like it was a – he was being puppeteered. So maybe I'm bringing that to – my perception of yeah, but we all know that we all on. know we all know that wasn't the plan though. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was the plan when I was watching the first movie. Nah, in the theater. But, um. Anyways, okay. So Mandalorians take refuge in some surface caves filled with lush greenery, and we learn that so, this is what. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. We learned that this is where they lived and survived, uh, the survivors on Mandalore, and that uh, with predators above and below, they planted these farms with species uh, indigenous to Mandalore that were weren't there for centuries. So there's sort of a long tradition of this sort of stuff in the Legends canon. Um, there's uh, a series called Legacy of the Force, which was really terrific, and I think... Um, the sequel trilogy might have been better served, at least in Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker, from taking a few more cues from this. But it's basically the turn of Jason Solo, which is the son of Han and Leia, and his turn to the dark side. Anyway, there's one book called Sacrifice that was the death of Mara Jade. But one of the huge subplots of the book is basically the Mandalorians coming back and like rebuilding their farms and rebuilding Mandalore after their apocalypse and stuff. And... Um, showing those farmer roots of the warriors. Um, and so this is something that's been in the canon for a long time. And it was it was really gratifying to see that those themes sort of come back to Mandalore, that, that they can be warriors of the land as well as warriors of the, you know, death. 
Yeah, I think there's also a bit of like a metaphor or a theme here with the Mandalorian people, the culture that's been almost thought to be dead and uh, they needing the room to grow together, as they said. Uh, but also, I think, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned this in your uh, the return, we also see the return of life to this planet of Mandalore. Yeah. Like Wally. Um, <laughs> like Wally. Uh, the Mandalorian reinforcements jetpack out of the gauntlet ships and the Mandalorians on the ground jetpack up to meet them and Bo ignites her darksaber as she leads the army on a dive towards the Imperial base below the surface. And this is amazing. This is this one is of the awesome. coolest action sequences of the season. Like jetpack action sequences like this, man, this was so much fun. I didn't know how much I needed to see something like this. Uh, there, as somebody who doesn't uh, really like anime, there were a couple shots that felt like live action anime shots to me with the way uh, like Bo and uh, everybody else were like charging with their weapons and like with the background moving fast behind them. It was just just a cool, cool sequence. Like they basically turned people into spaceships and had a dogfight in a cavern. <laughs> yeah, there's some really good examples of this elsewhere in the canon, too. If you dig this sort of fighting style. There's um, an episode of Rebels called Imperial Super Commandos. Like pretty much everything in Rebels that involves Mandalorians has cool stuff like this in it. But this really um, perfected it. Yeah. Okay. So meanwhile, Mando and IG-12 and Grogu make their way. Do you call them IG-12 or do you call them IG-12 and Grogu? Like how do you? How do you... I think it's Brian... just Grogu. Like IG-12 is a, a suit, right? Like IG-12 is a puppet. Yeah. So when you're writing your your recaps, you're just saying Grogu. It's Grogu. Yeah. yeah. Um, they Grogu, make their way to Moff- Grogu inside the shell of a droid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, they make their way to Moff Gideon's control center where Moff Gideon monologues about how his clones would have wielded the force and been and would have incorporated it into the an unstoppable army. And uh, Mando and Moff Gideon in his awesome dark trooper suit uh have a fight and this is when we realize i don't think we realized this last episode i think we realize it here that like uh the dark super uh, a dark trooper suit is like almost like a mech suit thing yeah the strength. It's, it's augmented and and the, he when he said he took his death trooper technology i just assumed it was sort of the armor but yeah, you can hear that he is. Yeah, you hear like um, the like the robot yeah. sounds that people do on the streets, like. Voot, voot, voot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when we were watching it, uh, Ketra looks over me and is like, "Is he a robot? Like, is there like?" And I saw some people online. It was like some confusing because I don't feel like they built that. Uh, they established that well enough. It's like the it's like the enhancements that Griff has in Back to the Future Part Two. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love that. I love that poll. Right, I love it. Um, uh, so the three Praetorian guards enter, and we saw last week how easily they were able to take out Paz Vizsla, who is considered one of the toughest people in uh, the Mandalorian clan. Of um... So the prospect of them and Darth Gideon, I'm going to call him, uh, Darth Gideon? Darth Gideon uh, seemed to be like very bad news for Mando. What are your thoughts on this fight sequence between Darth Gideon and uh, the Praetorian Guards versus Mando? 
again, it's a very cool action sequence. Uh, I, I, every time, the more I see of Gideon in this suit, the more I love him. Like this, I think this is one of my, my favorite like looks for a villain in a long time. Um, yes, he, he just he just looks so cool, and I hope that they make his helmet. If they make his helmet, I will buy it immediately. It is such a cool cool helmet. Um, but yeah, it's you know obviously he's a formidable foe. Uh, he was even when he didn't have the armor, you know, and so it's a it's a tough fight for for Din to be up against. I have a problem with those black series helmets, not but like a problem like I don't like them. Like I like whenever they release one, I have to buy it. They're like a hundred bucks. I just bought the store uh, the clone trooper helmet. I have the clone trooper helmet sitting next to me, and it looks so good. It's like a hundred bucks. They're very cool. Not though. that yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm sure they will make it. They'll make everything. Um, okay, so thankfully, uh, Grogu, in, uh, inside of IG12, is able to provide a bit of a distraction, and the the guards go after Grogu, and the uh, and the mech are able to cut down IG, but um, Grogu Jedi leaps out. And uh, none of the guards are able to get to Grogu as he, like, jumps on the lights above. And uh, it's a little silly, but it's fun. Uh, it's, a, so- it's like it's like when a younger sibling in a video game figures out a move they can do that actually, like, foils how good you are at the video game. And they, like, last longer than they should. <laughs> <laughs> it was... I really loved that whole fight. Like, watching Din and Grogu fight in tandem was so cool i have a question for you guys yeah do you think that there are a couple shots here where we got a fully cg grogu i assume there have been i know that it's it's the same thing where that you know jj abrams was like oh it's all real effects and it's like no they weren't (laughs) this is the first time where i yeah this is the first time where i actually felt like you, I could spot the digital uh, version of Grogu because there was a couple leaps that just felt a little too smooth. It was when he was basically jumping from one of the hanging lights to the the other that it, the leap just felt too too smooth to actually just be the puppet. Well, there was a shot later on in this episode where they walk into the New Republic uh, bar and you see Grogu like walking, like his like legs moving, and I was like, this looks bad. Yeah, I, I did I notice that, that his, his his when he was walking, he was like uh, kind of moving to the back and forth to the side too much that his feet weren't even really touching the ground. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure what was. Do you think that was completely CG Grogu, or do you think that was a puppet and then they had to like CG in the legs? No, I think that was the puppet because he he had they have a like a walking puppet version that they can do. Oh, so you don't even think that was... Oh, I thought that was a CG problem, but yeah, you might be right. No, I thought that was the puppet. I thought that's why it did look like that. Ah. Okay, so uh, Bo-Katan comes to Mando's aid, allowing him to go help Grogu. Uh, She ignites the Darksaber. Gideon has an extendable electro staff of some kind. It looks cool. And uh, the Praetorian Guards finally knock Grogu off, and he's trapped between metal pipes, but Mando comes in. And gets to them before they can get to Grogu, and he's finally, uh, finally able to take him out. And um, Gideon is able to crush the dark saber with his uh, powered glove, which is kind of a shocking moment. But this is another moment that, like, I'm like, 
I felt like they had set up the dark saber with, you know, the end of season one is something big. And then in the season, it kind of became nothing. It became a so, nothing burger because like no one cared about the dark. Uh, it didn't, didn't care so, about the dark saber. The other Mandalorians didn't care about the dark saber. That's, that's what's so symbolically great about it because Moff Gideon is getting played by the fact that these people are uniting and Moff Gideon has very been very calculating about how he approaches the Darksaber, whether that's taking it from Bo-Katan in the first place or arranging to lose it if he's going to lose it to Din Djarin to cause this rift between them. He thinks he's playing 3D chess, but the Mandalorians have evolved beyond it, which is why I really love that line after he crushes the dark saber and he says something to the effect of you know mandalorians are no good when they're you know when they lose their trinkets and bo-katan says like we're you know we're 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 better none of those matter we're better together because what this is is this is symbolic of like the mandalorians putting aside all of those differences in that dueling culture that would force them to fight each other to jockey for position and leadership and just be a stable, united people to defeat the people who would want to kill them. And so like, yeah, like Moff Gideon still felt like there was all this power in the dark saber, but it was a placebo and Bo-Katan and the rest of the Mandalorians finally figured that out. And that's the lesson that their entire culture learned over the course, the arc of these three episodes or these three seasons was that the dark saber really doesn't matter. What matters is us as a people. And so for me, that moment was really striking and symbolic and really good storytelling um, because it culminated in so much storytelling, not just from these three seasons of Mandalorian, but going back to rebels and going back even as far back as clone wars, where you had, uh, Bo-Katan's sister trying to create a pacifist society not based around the, the Darksaber and Bo-Katan fighting against her, right? With Death Watch following Pre Vizsla because he's wielding the Darksaber and for her to just not care and realize that her people are stronger without those divisions was really powerful for me. It would have been nice if they had learned that lesson without destroying one of the coolest weapons in Star Wars, though. <laughs> yes. Well, here's the other thing, too. Like, I think they can bring it back, right? Um, for one, uh, Ahsoka has already, like, that series has already revealed that they've got Hu Yang that has the, uh, you know, the the blueprints for every lightsaber, every maid going back, you know, 900 years, uh, and and sometimes even further, even before he was there, and so that maybe she could give him the blueprints to help figure that out but i think that's part of grogu's path to be honest you gotta think back to the story of the dark saber in the first place it was made by tar Vizla, who was the first mandalorian to walk the life of the jedi and he left the jedi to come back and rule mandalore using the dark saber and grogu is the latest in that long line of of mandalorians who had walked both those paths you know, it's not like Grogu's going to give up using the Force because of that, and the Dark Saber is something very different. Uh, and so, when Grogu is old enough to be able to find his own crystal or build uh, a saber of his own, I wouldn't be surprised if the Dark Saber is part of what becomes his saber. Uh, the same way Ezra's lightsaber was sort of cobbled together parts from the ship of the Ghost. So, I think there's there's still chances for it to come back and come back in a thematically new and interesting way right now. 
if you go back and look at Lord of the Rings references, right? This is this is uh, the shards of Narsil, and they can they can remake that weapon and bring it back better than ever to defeat the enemy that comes back. I feel like I was ranting there. I'm sorry. I would rather than make an, uh, a new cool weapon because I, especially at the end of this episode, uh, hey, Star Wars, uh, please stop bringing people and things back. Let things go away. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. I agree there. But uh, yeah, we don't need, I mean, we'll talk about it later. I'm not going to get into that. But I I don't know. I just feel like this this series was building up the dark. I, I know the dark saber existed before the series. I'm not saying that. And, I, and Brian, I like your, what you said and I, what you said, especially with Bo-Katan and how she felt about it and how that's a very important moment. It, it, you are right. It still just feels stu- like it feels like. Well, no, it, you see what they were trying to do. It didn't work yeah. for you. And that's totally fair. Yeah. I mean, you make a good argument for it. It's just, it, it, I don't know. It, it just feels, it feels like if John Favreau sets a lot of stuff up and then he just like pulls it, like, you know, he sets up Luke Skywalker and Grogu going into it. And then like, you know, two episodes later, it's gone. And then this, he, he it, sets up, it, it's just, it's, it's annoying to me. It's something I, I was talking to my son about it today and Anakin was telling me he was like it felt like they were just trying to clear all of the decks so 100%. they can just move to Thrawn yeah and and I don't think that's a wrong observation <laughs> uh, I, I just don't know you know with, with you saying and I, I agreed with you you saying that they had a plan for this how do you reason that they had this like grand plan of what they're doing with this Mandalorian verse, but then like them clearing the decks because it feels like they don't have a plan, but I believe they do. Well, no. Well, I mean, here's the thing. If you go back and look at when they were in production on season three, it was when they were finally getting greenlit for the other shows, right? Book of Boba Fett. uh, When that, when they finally got the go ahead for that, they were like, okay, we can do that. And then we can expand here think back how long ago was it that they announced Rangers of the new Republic and Ahsoka um, and these other spinoff shows? I mean, that was still before Bob Chapek took over. Right. And just because like they, they have a plan, you know, doesn't mean it's necessarily always going to be a good one. Uh, yes. I mean, I know uh, this is going to piss off Brian, but you know, the only star Wars that had a grand plan were the prequels. And I, I don't think those are the best star Wars, but I don't, I, I, it's funny how you think I'm just going to be pissed off because you have an opinion, man. <laughs> like, yeah, but I, I, I like the prequels. I just feel like, uh, you know, it, it, to Brad's point, having a plan doesn't necessarily make something good, I guess is what I'm. I think with TV shows, there's this tendency, and I think this is true of a lot of TV shows, not just Star Wars TV shows, but it takes a season or two for them to get their legs and then they start hitting their stride and they know exactly what they're going for. I think season two of Mandalorian is probably the strongest overall of Mandalorian. Yes. But I feel like they hit their stride and then saw how they needed to hit it and what story beats they needed to cross off before they could hit that stride which is why I think season four is going to be the one that's going to knock all of our socks off more than any of the others. I think a lot of my problems with this season have to do with expectation and what we got. 
I'm wondering if they had called this season, if this season was a little bit different and they had called the season, the Mandalorians with an S and it was, you know, the Mandalorian story with, you know, it kind of like how book of Boba Fett, uh, you know, had Grogu and Mando in it. I wonder if people wouldn't have had as many issues with the season. I mean, with it framed it, that way, it's still pulling like record breaking numbers. And yeah, if you go online, like the conversation, if if you just search the hashtag, like the conversations are overwhelmingly positive, like probably in a four to one kind of ratio. And people are talking about it. Even people who aren't just like dedicated Star Wars accounts. Like, I think what they're doing is generally working. Even the people who have bad things to say about whether it's Mando or the Star Wars sequels or anything like that. Like there are these people who say like, well, this is why I'm done with Star Wars. I'm not going to watch any of these, these new movies. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you will because you need something more to be angry about. <laughs> yeah. I think what I, what I'm trying to say is like, not that Rotten Tomato numbers equate to like the fact, but you know, season one of run uh, of Mandalorian was 93% on the tomato meter and an audience score of 92 Season two of Mandalorian was 93% on tomato meter and 91% on the audience uh, score. And then season three dropped to 87% well, on the tomato meter but, and 50% on the audience score. So, so, I, but that audience score, you also have to take into account the, the operation of folks who got pissed off and vowed to review bomb it because of Gina Carano. Yeah. There's been some review bombing happening. Wouldn't they have review accurate. bombed the second season? No, she was on the second season. Yeah, and the, se- and, and the second season's already done, so like they're not doing any damage to a season that was already done and good. Okay, fair enough. I, I, fair I, enough. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I find that that Rotten Tomatoes or audience scores anywhere are so easily gamed by the worst actors that it's it's better to not pay attention to them, good or bad. Okay, well, I would say incidental. My my friends and <laughs> critics, it seems like this is the the least liked season of The Mandalorian. <laughs> I don't think that I don't think there's a doubt there. Yeah, I think I think people were really excited by season one. I think season two really built on it really well. This season, as much as I've enjoyed it, has been a little bit more uneven, and that's not a bad thing. Like right, like I really do think they are table setting for what's coming next. And what's coming next is Ahsoka. I, I agree with that to some extent, but I also think sometimes, like, uh, you know, you can take too long to set the table because people want to eat dinner. <laughs> Brad's been, like, on fire today with his comparisons and metaphors. <laughs> and Okay, let's get back to the episode. Mando and Grogu help Bo in her fight with Gideon as Axe pilots the light cruiser as it comes crashing down towards the planet in Gideon's base. Axe jetpacks out of a window as the Mandalorians evacuate by jetpack and the ship comes crashing down into the chasm. A big explosion flame envelops Gideon. And uh, you know what, guys? We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so it looks like Gideon's dead. We can talk about that in... We'll talk about, you know, we'll leave that for speculation. So so hang with us. It's revealed that Mando and Bo are safe 
as Grogu is is using the Force to create this pocket of safety within this explosion. Did any of you get like Guardians of the Galaxy Groot kind of vibes for the from this moment? The shot did feel like that, yeah. Um, the vibes I the vibes I got were very much um, rebels, right? And and Raphael on on Slash Film wrote a piece about this, right, where um, Kanan's sacrifice is him holding back the flames for the rest of the the ghost crew to get away and and sacrificing himself in that similar way. But here, Grogu, Din, and Bo-Katan are all uniting to protect each other. I thought that was adorable when, when she puts her shield in front of Grogu and Din shields him with his body and then Grogu's the one who protects all of them with the Force and stuff. It was... Uh, I didn't get the... I didn't get the 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 Guardians of the Galaxy vibe. I I very much got the the thematic Star Wars vibe because I mean even the imagery was very much right out of Star Wars earlier as well. I also want to mention but now that you say it. <laughs> I also want to mention that Slash Film Daily listener Cade from Iowa wrote in to tell us that the track in the score for the finale episode where Grogu is creating this protective bubble in the fire it's. It's not an exact copy, but it's very close uh, sounding to the Hans Zimmer track from the Prince of Egypt when the Red Sea is parted, uh, unquote. Uh, so I just wanted to respond to that. Um, that could just be a coincidence or many times when when filmmakers are editing something, they will edit to a uh, – what do they call that, Brad? It's a, a temp a, track. A, yeah, temp track. Yeah, so they use music tracks from other movies and stuff like that. And then sometimes when the composer actually goes to score that moment, uh, it ends up sounding a little bit like the temp track. So that could be why. Have you guys ever seen movies with temp tracks? Yes. Like I, I've seen like in test screenings, like yeah. movies with temp tracks. It's wild. Um, I've I've been interested in trying to put together the temp track, the temp score for A New Hope. Because I think the biggest example of what you were talking about, Peter, is in A New Hope, where they used some of Bernard Herrmann's Psycho in that moment in A New Hope when Han and Chewie, they they rise out of the floorboards and it's that really distinctive three-beat note. I don't even think John Williams changed it. He just took it right out of the Psycho score that was on the temp track. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I've heard some editors talk, and like composers talk about this. How like they they sometimes don't even want to use a temp track because sometimes the filmmaker will become so married to the yeah. feeling that that song gives that like anything that they compose is like not what that song you know it's not that song, so it ends up becoming kind of a copy of a copy kind of thing. It's interesting. Um... I watched an interview with Ryan Johnson where he was talking about his temp track and he says there's, there's enough star Wars music for him to have been able to use a temp track entirely of star Wars music. And instead of doing a spotting <laughs> session with John Williams, he just handed him the temp track and John Williams built everything like knowing exactly what the vibes Ryan Johnson was going for based on the previous compositions he'd done from the temp track. That's cool. That's awesome. And I think last Jedi score is so good. I mean, there's a ton of Star Wars music. If you go to the, like the animated stuff, which we never, we didn't talk about this when we talked about Celebration, but they announced the person uh, scoring Ahsoka is Kevin Kiner. Yeah, who did the animated stuff, and he's incredible at capturing and that John done, Williams sound. 
he's done he's composed more star wars music than anyone on the planet like he did seven seasons of clone wars he did bad batch he uh did star wars rebels right like he established the iconic sounds for ahsoka uh him and his sons did the classic organ music for thrawn which uh like is iconic in its own right. And he's been able to incorporate those thing themes around John Williams's themes. And I'm, I had some people very mad at me for saying this uh, last week on slash film, but I think he's every bit as important to the music and the, the score of star Wars as John Williams. I mean, I know John Williams is the original and he originated what that's supposed to feel like, but Kevin Kiner has, has carried that torch in a way that, um, is every bit as important as John Williams's contributions. I could definitely see that argument. Okay, anyway, so later in the Minds of Mandalore, the armor baptizes Ragnar Vizsla, and Mando presents Grogu. By the way, that baptism, this is the second time we're seeing it this season. First time it was interrupted by a creature below the water. This time there's a creature below the water, but didn't interrupt it. Um, Mando presents Grogu to the armor, arguing that he is no longer a foundling, but now an apprentice. The armor says that since he's too young to speak, he can't say the creed and must remain a foundling. And I think this is the first time that it occurred to me that the Mandalorians are so much like the Jedi in that the Jedi have Padawan, the Jedi, you know, like the the apprentice Jedi Matt, like there's there's the levels of like the the training. Do you think that's yeah, a coincidence? Yeah, no, Brian? I think I don't think I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that the Jedi, part of the reason I think the Jedi and the Mandalorians butted heads so much is because they are so similar in certain ways, um, but the ways in which they're different are so drastically different that they're going to come in conflict. Yeah. So D- Din comes up with a loophole if he. If his parents give permission, he could. But the armor says his parents are far from here if they are even alive, uh, which would who knows if we'll ever see where Grogu comes from. Uh, Mando makes the decision at this moment to adopt Grogu as his own child, and the armor declares that Grogu is now Din Grogu. So there's a couple things to unpack here. Uh, I had friends text me saying that the, this was a really an emotional moment for them, that it made them cry. To me, it... It didn't didn't hit because I always I already assumed that he had adopted had adopted Grogu. Like it didn't it felt like something that had already happened. Even though it wasn't I guess said. when you look at the beginning of the season where he's just sort of like I gave him up and he returned to me and I don't know why. Like this is a long story and I don't get it. And he's trying to teach him stuff, but he doesn't really and he doesn't trust him, right? Like this whole episode um, or even the last episode where we got IG-12 in the first place, like he didn't think he was ready for it at all. And now he's just like, not only is he ready for it, I will take him on as my own. And and I thought it was really touching. It, it did work for me um, because I saw that struggle with him through this season um, where I didn't think that it was a foregone conclusion. Um, but I don't think it's invalid to have just assumed that it was a foregone conclusion either. So I get where you're coming from. Brad, how did this moment play for you? It, it made sense. Like, of course this needed to happen, but like, it felt like he had already basically adopted Gorgu anyway. And this was just, you know, the formal way of, you know, actually making him space daddy. 
Uh, also, isn't Din Mando's first name? How does the naming convention work with Mandalorians? Um, I mean, with Mandalorians, they've got the normal first name and last name, but Din Djarin had his name before he became a Mandalorian foundling. So why does Grogu get his first name then? I'm I'm just so confused. well. I'm saying like we don't know anything about the culture that that Din Djarin came from. Well, maybe we should start calling him Kinjarin instead of Grogu or instead of Din because it sounds like maybe Din is his last name. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like it's it's the same thing when you go to Japan and we'll refer to him as Toshiro Mifune, but if you go to Japan, it's like Mifune Toshiro. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, maybe it's just the culture thing. Okay, so the armorer says that Mando must leave Mandalore and take his apprentice on his journeys, just like his teacher did for him. And uh, Grogu looks at his reflection in the mines of Mandalore in the water, and we, you know, pan down to see the mythosaur deep below the water, opening his eyes. I feel like the the mythosaur be- below the waters of Mandalore is something that was built up that I was pretty sure that we were going to get a payoff this season. Oh, you you said it repeatedly. I know, I know. Uh, it, 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 you, don't, you don't think that, like, I don't know, in Boba Fett having the armor say, you know, the Mythosaur will rise and, and herald the new era of Mandalore, and then showing us the Mythosaur below the waters, of Man, uh, the mines of Mandalore, and then am I, am, I, am I being one of those fans that, like, is creating an unreasonable expectation, or do you think it's in the text that that expectation is being placed there? So I, I don't think it's in the text because the fact that the mythosaur is alive at all is what the the armorer is talking about in Book of Boba Fett, right? Like they've all assumed that mythosaurs have been extinct for generations. And so it being alive at all and us seeing it at all fulfills enough of that prophecy. And we see the effects of that. Bo-Katan comes in, says, I saw it. This is what we're doing. And the armorer says, screw it. I don't care if your helmet's off. You have my hammer. Right? Like, so, like, what does it matter if there's another scene of the mythosaur rising because the mythosaur showed back up? Bo-Katan saw it. Bo-Katan utilized that and curried that favor with the other factions and united them, as was prophesied. Like, it hit all of the beats the prophecy said it was going to. Why, Why does it need to come back? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you make a good point. It, it did, but then what? What is this final moment of us panning down through the water? It's uh, like the people there, the Mandalorians there, aren't seeing it. Uh, the I guess Grogu. I got, it's Grogu. Grogu was sensing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly what I thought. Is like it's he's clearly sensing him through the force. Yeah. Okay, so Bo relights the Great Forge with a torch. It was very easy to do, apparently. Uh, I'm sure there was some rebuilding. Uh, Mandalorian celebrate and yell uh, uh, something uh, for Mandalore, I think they said. And uh, then we cut to Mando in his N1 lands on the New Republic base and uh, seeing Grogu walk. Was the, this is the moment where it's funny. And we see you know Dave Filoni is in the bar as a cameo. But also it looks like next to him might be Pete Ramsey directed an episode earlier this season did dave filoni so have his hat a, on the uh, last time we saw him it, in that place yes 
Okay. I didn't. I'm. I'm. I think yes, I missed. Did. I think I missed his cameo last time, and so seeing him in, in his hat, I was just like, "Come on." <laughs> yeah. He was. He was in his hat, but he was so far in the foreground and just blurred out. Yeah. That like. I didn't notice him the first time I watched it. I saw it in the credits and then started looking for it and it was like, oh, he's literally this this hyper out of focus foreground dressing, but he was wearing the hat. Um and when they showed some behind the scenes footage or photos of that at celebration, um Doug Chang was in that that group as well, dressed up as a pilot. Ah. Is it funny to you that they've basically cast like they're, they're painting the new Republic to be like these kind of like buffoons. And they basically cast all the directors of the, the show, the Mandalorian as the, 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 the people that are in the new Republic. What does that say, Brian? It says that they wanted residuals. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Carson Tiva offers to buy Mando a drink for taking out Moff Gideon and Grogu is eating some bar snacks on the counter and notices the IG head hanging above the bar and he tells him uh, uh, Din tells him that it's not it's not IG-11 something I I didn't notice in our previous scene that took place in this bar there's so many artifacts above the bar including a probe droid head Um, was there anything I didn't see in above the bar was there any cool items Brian Uh, I feel like one of those stormtrooper heads was one of the ones that we saw on 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 a pike in season one the one with the slash marks across it oh maybe yeah you might be right um and mando offer how did it get all the way over there from navarro who knows anyways so mando offers to become an off the books freelance bounty hunter or actually not to navarro wait was that navarro yeah, it was Navarro. That was a Delphi. And then he Delphi? goes to Navarro after. Yeah. Uh, so Mando offers to become an off-the-books freelance bounty hunter for the New Republic. While Tiva says he needs to think about it, Mando's sure he's already decided. He takes an advance, which is the scrapped assassin droid head, the IG head, above the bar. And then we cut to Navarro, which has been rebuilt since we last saw Grief Karga gives... Mando keys to a cabin on the outskirts of town, a home between adventures. And Mando presents grief with a gift, a refurbished IG-11 as a new Marshal of Navarro, another bounty hunter uh, with a new life. And um, the townspeople are very happy with it. His, his chest is painted with red and white stripes. Is there any meaning to that, Brian? Um. With red and no, I think it's just cool and Navarro. Okay. Uh, next, we cut to Mando's new home in the lava flats in Navarro. Mando watches Grogu as he levitates the frog. The frame becomes a circle around Grogu and Mando, father and son, before shrinking to black. Uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on this ending? Uh, well, uh, they brought IG 11 back, and that sucks. Um, not a fan of that. Didn't need that. Why does it suck? Because, like, just let characters die. Like, it, it completely just undoes, like, the sacrifice that he made. It makes it doesn't make it matter as much. Like, let characters come to noble ends, you know? Uh, I don't care that it's a droid. Like, like we, we've come to care about so many droids in Star Wars. Like, if they, if they come to a point where, like, they serve a purpose and, like, they 
sacrifice themselves. Like, let them do that. Like, don't, we just didn't need this to happen. Um, aside from that, you know, I don't mind the calm, serene ending of having uh, Din Djarin and Grogu sitting on this farm, kind of having their peaceful existence, you know, and like kind of makes it seem like things are chill. It kind of felt like a series finale in that way. Um, and if they never did another season of Mandalorian and they finished their story in the Dave Filoni movie that's coming, that would be just fine. And, you know, you, you know that they could go back to that and just having kind of like a relatively peaceful existence as this cool bounty hunter duo. Um, but yeah, I was, I will say, I'm not necessarily sure. I like the cutesy little Iris in on Mando and, uh, Grogu. It kind of felt like it should have been from, for another show. Um, but that's just a little nitpick on my end. <laughs> I really liked that actually. Um, that moment, uh, not not just to be a contrarian, um, but when I I did an interview uh, with Rick Famuyiwa for the beginning of the season, and I asked him, you know, sort of what movies he had taken in that inspired the relationship between Din and Din. Now, uh, the the Dins, the Din family. Um, not confusing. I didn't at all. know that then. No, not at all. Um, but uh, I and he brought up actually Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, and there's a couple of really striking moments in Charlie Chaplin's The Kid where they have that very specific sort of iris out, and sometimes it's you know once it's played for danger and once it's played for you know this serenity. But it was interesting hearing him talk about how he used Charlie Chaplin's Kid as a template for how he was going to convey their relationship in silence because there's no words spoken between them. Like his first episode, you got to remember is the one with the mud horn, right? So it's just like, nobody's talking, nobody's around to say anything. Yeah. Um, but I love, I love when star Wars goes back to those classic silent film influences. Um, and so for me, it, it smacked of that really, really classy, classic film moment. I mean, wipes have been something in Star Wars since New Hope. Uh, they've done Iris ma- outs have been too. Have they? I was going to ask you. When, when have we yeah. seen that? Yeah, there's been a bunch of them. At the end of every theatrical movie? Yeah. and But this was a different one, though. This at was the like- end of every episode of Clone Wars? At the end of every set of Rebels? Yeah. The, um, I don't know. It just seemed a little weird. It seemed a little weird. Uh, it also seemed like a weird ending. Uh, also, um... You know, the first season had a. Was the first season the scene with the dark saber? Was that a mid credit scene or was that just the end scene? No, it was just the end scene. It was the the dark saber. You know, him igniting the dark saber out of the tie fighter, and then yeah. season two was really them sort of watching Luke leave. Yeah, I feel like this this season finale, the end of it isn't as interesting to me well i'm i'm excited because basically like they, they've set up the next season and it's basically like din jaren and din grogu are going to be nazi hunters in the new republic essentially and that's exciting to think about okay let's um let's go right into speculation but before we do that we'll be right back Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. 
take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Okay. Uh, actually, before we get into speculation, is there anything you guys want to say about this season in general that we didn't touch upon in the, you know, 10 hours or 12 hours, whatever we podcasted for? It's Since we've been doing pretty much hour and a half episodes, we're looking more like 20, Peter. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. I uh, um, one, thing, one thing I did want to point out that um, we we wrote an article about actually, I don't think a lot of people noticed this for whatever reason, because people kind of stopped paying close attention to the concept art that plays during the credits. But there's a piece of concept art during this finale that shows uh, white Mandalorian armor inside of a TIE interceptor cockpit. Um, at least I assume it's a TIE interceptor cockpit. It could easily be a TIE bomber, but it has that TIE, that familiar TIE fighter cockpit window that we all know. Um, and it would seem to indicate that at one point, the concept art that they created for the uh, Gideon's uh, super commandos, super troopers, whatever you want to call them, were going to reuse the white Boba Fett armor when Boba Fett was originally intended to be a super imperial troop uh, for Empire Strikes Back before that, char- that, that character design became Boba Fett with a different paint job. Um, for those that don't know, Boba Fett's uh, original armor was made for this super trooper, uh, imperial stormtrooper that was supposed to be part of Star Wars, but then it got used uh, for Boba Fett instead. And if you look at this concept art, you can see that it is very clearly uh, all white Mandalorian armor inside one of those tie cockpits. And so I think that they abandoned the idea of doing that, maybe to avoid confusion between Mandalorians and that Boba Fett look, well, uh, or because they just came up with a different design that they thought maybe looked a little bit better. If you look at the Imperial super commandos that Moff Gideon has them fight against. Um, and I actually wrote a piece about this last week. Um, they felt like Imperial super commandos and it felt like they had gone back to that Ralph McQuarrie design for these white troopers that Gideon has been uh, floating around. I think they just, that, that art just didn't get used because I don't feel like we got into the cockpits of any of the tie interceptors. We did. Um, they they showed a, they showed a, they, they showed a regular, they showed a regular TIE fighter pilot inside one of the, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get into it, guys. Let's get into speculation. I guess, Brian, you've already said it, that you think season four is going to be Grogu and Mando out hunting Nazis of, you know, the Imperial Nazis. Um, is it going to be, I mean, it seems like, you know, one of the big criticisms of the season is that Mando and Grogu became kind of supporting characters in this this season's story. I feel like the end if the end of the season does anything, I think it feels like it's a reset to it's it's almost like a promise of like oh we're gonna get back to it being about these two guys in the the this galaxy it, like they're gonna be the focus of this upcoming season. What do you think? I think it's going to come back to what plays out in Ahsoka too. I think Din Djarin, I think what they they've sensed is that Din Djarin's not the character and Din Djarin himself has sensed that he's not the guy who's going to change the universe, right? He's going to do small things in his own little 
uh, personal way to make his world a better place and to make Grogu's world a better place, which is why he's like, I'm not the main character here. I'm going to, I'm, I'm supporting you until your song is finished. Bo-Katan in the last episode. You know what I mean? And I think they realized that maybe that's where Din Djarin fits best. And these spinoff shows allow them to tell these huge overarching stories about the universe. Ahsoka is one of those characters that changes the course of the galaxy. Bo-Katan is one of those characters. Grand Admiral Thrawn is one of those characters. So getting Mandalorian back to those basics where he's he's having smaller scale stories, I think is where people kind of want him. I think that's maybe where some people feel like these seasons faltered, where where he got too close to all of those major galactic events and some of the things that people like most about it was him just on the fringes. I just wonder what he's going to uncover in the outer rim, like what, how this feeds into the, you know, leading up to the movie that Dave Filoni is doing. Uh, obviously, well, you know, what? I mean, he, he could run into Thrawn. I mean, Thrawn is yeah. out in the unknown regions beyond the outer rim. So the first place he's going to come back is these fringes. Yeah. Okay. So I got to ask the question, even though I think it's pretty obvious Brad, I'm going to ask him because he he seems the most passionate about this. Is Moff Gideon dead? No, of course not. Uh, They're not going to let Gideon go like this, even though it seems like he's dead. Uh, They're going to have to bring him back and he'll probably, you know, uh, be horrifically scarred, something something like that. They'll they'll have a way to bring him back. Unless you even when you even when you see Star Wars characters seemingly die, they can come back. So. Well, I don't. I was gonna say, do you think like like that Moff Gideon is is alive, or do you think like I I I would have thought that like they would bring back like one of his clones or something? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they figure out a way where like they they retrieve his body and they figure out a way to like you know put like Gideon's you know consciousness into that clone, or or if it, it could easily just be a clone that like is fully formed with uh, whoever Gideon was when he had those clones created. Um, but yeah, who knows. I just remembered there's a there's a Dr. Saito Silo Silo Saito in the Marvel Star Wars comics had developed a way to clone himself and put his consciousness in other bodies. Um, and that technology exists in the Star Wars universe um, already in the canon. So Moff Gideon could do that. But yeah, no, I mean, like for one, he's in his badass Beskar Death Trooper armor, so he could likely survive that maybe if they need him to. And then yeah, there's there's clones all over the place. Like if they need that, they can do that. I mean, I love the actor. I love I love the his character here, but I, I kind of want to see them move on to other things. I mean, like Brad said, that you know, you know, you don't need to keep on bringing and he's lost. He's lost like three times to them, right? I mean, that's what bad guys in Star Wars do. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but th- you know what they say? Three strikes and you're out. Uh. And I mean, he they lost to him too. I mean, he shattered them at the Purge. He shattered them on Navarro. He abducted Grogu. It's not, I mean, like, yeah. it's not like he's just lost every time. It's not like he's he's chalking up loss after loss. I mean, it has gone back and forth. Yeah. 
Okay, so who is the bad guy for season four? Do you think it's actually going to be Moff Gideon, Moff Gideon clone, Hawks, Thrawn? What are your thoughts? I, with them hunting down Imperial, I, I would, I would wonder if maybe some of those Imperial warlords, or that maybe Din Djarin gets onto the hunt for Thrawn, and maybe, maybe Carson Tava and Ahsoka put him on the hunt for low-level Imperials that can put him uh, on the trail of Thrawn or on the trail to Pelion. Uh, so we have Ahsoka next, which uh, we assume is about the search for Ezra and probably the reemergence of Thrawn. You said that this is connected to that in more ways than I'm seeing. Yeah, I think the... Uh... Um, you know, there's the clone thing, the Mount Tantus stuff. Okay. There's there's the stuff with Thrawn there with Pelion and the Imperial Remnant putting things together. There's Ahsoka name dropping him, right? Like there's just there's a lot of little things adding up. Uh, do you think we'll get another season of something Mandalorian verse before Dave Filoni's movie in between Ahsoka and the movie? I, I I think so. Brad, what are your thoughts? Are we going to get a Mandalorian season four before the movie? I don't know. Cause like, I don't think so because I think that, if they were, they, they would already be working on Mandalorian season four, probably if they if they had something. And I feel like we would have heard them being uh, rolling production already. So I think that the movie is probably going to be first. Um. Well, I, but Kathy Kennedy said that the movies were all very early days, and I get the impression that they've been like working on the Mandoverse stuff like continuously. That's why I think that the movie is going to happen first. Wait, Brad, so you're saying, do you think this movie is going to happen first out of the gate of those three movies? No, not necessarily, but I think it'll happen before another season of Mandalorian. Okay. Uh, do uh, Is Dr. Pershing done? Like, are we going to see him go? Like, like they spent a whole episode with him in the season uh, and it, it makes me wonder, like, did we, what did we accomplish with that episode? After the season is done as a whole, the episode seems to just set up that spy who tells Gideon about the Mandalorian. But if we take that episode out of there, like what, I don't know. I, I guess I'm like trying to reassess the season as a whole after the fact, because I really like that episode, but I'm not sure. Sure, especially if Gideon is dead. If Gideon is dead, then who is she spying for? I don't think she has connections to the other warlords. So it's like, what did that episode even do for this show, the story? I mean, I think we're going to get more Pershing. It also gave us more backstory about setting up the New Republic. So it sets the stage for all the Carson Tava stuff. And how the New Republic fun- functions. Yeah. Do you guys have any other speculation for the future of the Mandalorian verse? 
I'm just excited to see what's coming. I feel like the season doesn't really set doesn't set much up for us. Like it sets up like a vague idea, but it doesn't. You know, it's not like this big cliffhanger like you know last season with Luke. Um, so it, it, it's interesting, is what I'm going to say. I, I think overall, I I like this season. I know a lot of people online I see were really down on it. Uh, I enjoyed it. I, I definitely think it is the worst out of the three seasons, but um, yeah, know. but that's like saying like it's the worst of the you know <laughs> flavor of ice cream or yes, you know whatever. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's Rocky Road. It's not my thing, but it's still very sweet and has the right texture in my mouth. For sure, Brian. Where can we find more of your work online? Uh, you can listen to my Star Wars podcast at Full of Sith. You can read all my stuff, uh, breaking down Star Wars stuff and, and other stuff. I do other stuff for Slash Film as well at Slash Film. Uh, and you can find me at swankmotron.com where I'm writing books and doing all kinds of other stuff and um, just enjoying writing. Brad, where can people find more of your work on the interwebs? Occasionally, SlashFilm.com, even though I'm doing a lot of editing these days. Uh, I also have my own podcast called Go Flicks Yourself that I do with a couple movie-loving friends of mine where we talk about various movies and uh, just have some general tomfoolery and shenanigans. Uh, and I also uh, have a Saturday Night Live podcast called the 10 to 1 podcast where we review and recap new episodes of Saturday Night Live. So feel free to check those out. And I'm at Ethan underscore Anderton on Twitter. Of course, you can find me here on Slash Film Daily, but you can also find me on uh, most social media platforms at Peter Soretta and uh, follow me on YouTube. We do uh, uh, videos about theme parks, travel, food, more ordinary adventures. We recently did an episode uh, trying, we, we tried all the, the pizzas and Southern California theme parks and tried to decide if what pizza is the best. Is there good pizza at theme parks? You'll have to go watch it to find out. Uh, you can find more of all the stories we've mentioned on today's show. There's a bunch of coverage from The Mandalorian from this episode and speculating on what, where things are going. You can find that at SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. You can find this podcast published every weekday on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, speculation to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please head on over to our Apple podcast page. Write us a review. Give us five stars. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.